Welcome back to another episode of Art Interesting Times. It is my pleasure to have Dr. E. Michael Jones back on the show. He returns to discuss his article in, that's in the September issue of Culture Wars, The Invisible Man at the Race Riots. Um, of course, Dr. Jones is the uh, editor of Culture Wars magazine and the author of many books, including the recently published Logos Rising, A History of Ultimate Reality. Dr. Jones, how are you doing this evening? Good, Tim. Good to be here. Well, thank you for coming back on the show. Um, well, uh, we, there's been some developments. Uh, I learned uh, Friday evening uh, that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had officially passed away. <laughs> yes. Uh, there's been some rumors about her health for years. Um, in fact, it was a, I think it was, it was a scandal in of itself that she had been serving, given her the, you know her reported condition. But you know, I don't think she was could anyway be lucid or take on the responsibilities. This is the responsibilities we think go with being an associate justice. Justice of the Supreme Court. But anyway, she uh, has gone on to eternal reward or, or whatever she's experiencing. I'm not one for maledictions, but I would, would say that the world is a little bit of a better place for her passing and leave it yes. up to God to, discern, to determine the, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, what her fate is in the afterlife. So um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I mean, we have all this hysteria. She's passed away. We're, I don't know if this is just affected for social media now, the age we live in. A lot of you know people threatening to protest and riot if Trump appoints her a successor, although he has to. He's the president. That's his job. And the Senate is there to offer advice and consent and approve. The Senate is now currently controlled by the Republicans, so I don't know what they expect. But um, I'll let you get your take on her, the, the passing and the politics of her, of her position being filled. Yeah, she apparently wrote a letter before she died. Uh, saying that uh, it was her most, most fervent wish that uh, Trump not be allowed to appoint her successor and that, that she didn't want her successor appointed until Trump was no longer in office. Um, I, I think this gives you some indication of the type of person she was. Uh, she's not interested in uh, interpreting the law. There's no scholarship here. It's just pure uh, political will, pure political vendetta, uh, hatred against a man that uh, would challenge her agenda. And, and what was her agenda? Uh, abortion certainly was a big part of it. Uh, feminism, gay marriage, uh, all, all of the pathologies that uh, are plaguing our, our culture right now. She was in the forefront of defending them and, and promoting them. Uh, so that, that's what's this got to do with the law? Well, nothing. Well, nothing. Is this scholarship of the law? No, no. Uh, the really interesting thing uh, that just came to uh, to my attention was a speech she gave at the Holocaust Museum in 2004. And uh, in this speech, she began by talking about uh, her rise uh, in America. Her, her Jewish background, uh, the fact that uh, anti-Semitism was a horrible scourge uh, throughout human history, uh, and uh, playing the victim card, uh, even though she was appointed uh, not so much for scholarship, but because she was a Jew and a woman, and the, those were kind of the, the, the qualifications that you needed at this point, uh, uh, because it could count on that type of person to render a certain type of opinion, on and on and on in the fashion that we've all become accustomed to. And then at the end, she, she has the, the gall to quote scripture. 
And she says, the one thing that we've learned is we need to choose life. <laughs> choose life? <laughs> Wait a minute. Haven't you ever seen those anti-abortion posters? I mean, they're quoting the Bible, and that makes sense when they quote the Bible. What do you mean? <laughs> choose life? When you basically condemned how many people, uh, half of them women, some of them Jews, to death because they were inconvenient uh, to the mother at the time of birth, uh, condemned mothers to life of woe, bewailing the fact that they killed their own children. And you have the gall to quote scripture and say, choose life. Uh, now, what's going on here? Now, I think we need to look back into history and the history of art and Christian iconography to understand this. And so what is the traditional representative of the Jew in Christian iconography? It's on the facade of uh, cathedrals in, uh, I believe, Amiens. I know it's on the facade of the cathedral in Strasbourg. Uh, it's synagogue, and synagogue is portrayed as a woman with a blindfold on. That's right. Yeah. Notre, Notre yeah. Dame Cathedral, yeah. too, right? Yeah. Yeah. If there's ever a woman who epitomizes synagogue, it's Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the Jewish woman with the blindfold, the, the ideological blindfold that blinds her to everything. To blinds her to everything human, any type of human value, any type of mercy for human life, for the poor, for the for the the, the victim, the weakest uh, among us, the unborn. And not only does she uh, is she blind to that; she's blind to her own fatuous infatuation with herself as a victim. Now, people like this should not be appointed to the Supreme Court. When are we going to learn? People like this should not be in any position of power in the United States of America. People like this should not teach at universities. And if there's one, if if we could if we could learn this lesson, and from now on refuse to appoint people like this to any position of power based on the the blood that was on her hands when she died, then uh, we will have made the world a better place. Yes, the, the political wrangling, the hysteria, the controversy that um, surrounds the Supreme Court now is a product of the judicial activism that Ruth Bader Ginsburg and many of her, uh, her, of her colleagues or her or, you know, uh, predecessors in the court have created, the very thing where the, no longer can a judge be expected to uh, exercise judicial temperament. He's there to make the world a better place, to kun olam, if you will. And they're not supposed to be, you know, they're supposed to interpret the law based on a good faith reading of the law as written, original intent. No. You know. no. So what So what are we talking about here? Uh, hysterical women. I've seen videos of them screaming, <laughs> screaming into the camera, you know, hysterical. What is driving this? Is this, uh, 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 you know, one school of legal interpretation as opposed to another <laughs> <laughs> Strict constructionists versus loose is loose constructionism. Does that drive women to hysteria? No, no. What drives women to hysteria? The answer is very simple. It's guilt. It's guilt, honey, because you killed your children. <laughs> That's the most the most heinous thing you can think of. I mean, maybe 
the most heinous thing that I can think of. A, a, a being who is totally dependent on its mother, and the mother then turns on that child and has it dismembered. And of course, Ruth Ruth Bader uh, Ginsburg was the one who uh, cast the, the de- deciding vote for uh, um, late-term partial birth abortion. And in the Carhartt, I, I believe that's the name of the decision. Yes, yeah, there, 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 is, yeah, there is a graphic yeah. description of what that means, and a graphic description from the nurse of the of the the baby, kind of reaching out that little hand, reaching out for some type of assistance from its mother, when its mother is the one who's killing it, instrumental in the killing of it. And and Ruth, you 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 kind of patted yourself on the back as a as a heroine because you promoted that kind of stuff. Well, that's crazy. <laughs> what, what is driving this? It's guilt. What drives the Amer- uh, the Democratic Party? What do they mobilize? They mobilize the guilt of all of these women who have killed their children. Because if there's no Ruth Bader Ginsburg, they're left with their own guilty conscience. If there's no feminist movement so that these people can get in large numbers and march down the street with their pussy hats on, they have to think about what they've done. And once they get into that situation, it becomes intolerable. The guilt that they feel is intolerable, and it comes out every time a Supreme Court justice has to get nominated. There is that fear that maybe what I did was wrong, and maybe the law will change, and maybe everyone will turn and say it was wrong, and then what do I do? How would I I deal with that? And so the reaction is hysteria. And once again, we're in with another session of hysteria, okay? Female hysteria over guilt because of abortion. That's not, should not be part of the legal profession. That should not be the main factor in deciding who gets to uh, a seat on the Supreme Court. Yeah, instead of, uh, they seek redemption in progressive politics rather than, you know, the, uh, than the, than the confessional. And they've been alienated right. from, uh, from from their from from the church, so they have no avenue right. to to address this this right. thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's misery just a- loves misery loves yeah. company, you know. And there are people who can who, women I know who have understood the evil that the magnitude of the evil that they committed, and they've turned their lives around, and they've gone to confession and been forgiven of their sin. But that will not bring the baby back. You know, and, you know, with even with the best of intentions, even with the grace of God behind you, you still have that small figure lurking in the background, kind of extending its hand to the person who is supposed to protect it most in life, uh, the mother. And the mother turns on that baby and they'll never forget that hand that they dismembered. The, 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 The child that they loved was dismembered. At their command. Yeah, I, I can imagine because <laughs> one of the most painful things to do as a parent would be to bury a child because it's supposed to be the other way around. Uh, and the parent never gets over that. Um, luckily, I have not experienced that, but it's got to be awful. I can't imagine the guilt if you're actually directly responsible for the death of your kid. You know, uh, I cannot imagine it e- yeah. either. I cannot imagine. All I can do is I can recount story- the people who have told me what, you know, why what they did and how they feel and how they 
you know, there's never a day where they don't think about baby died uh, at their uh, because of their their command, because of their negligence, because of their callous conscience. It's we should not be we shouldn't. First of all, we should not put women in this position. Mm-hmm. Secondly, we should not uh, mobilize these women as a force in national politics and make the the uh, uh, make the political arena uh, the the the, uh, the arena for guilt fueled female hysteria, which is what it is every time a Supreme Court justice dies. Now, of course, with with Beta Ginsburg, um when she was appointed by by uh, uh, Clinton in 1994 or 93, late 1993, I think it was, um, she already had a long track record of being an activist, you know, uh, a litigant, an activist. And it was, you know, obviously she didn't have judicial temperament going in, uh, into this position. It wasn't a shock. Uh, her rulings weren't, weren't a shock. She was always a political operative. And she, um, on the bench, she actively, at least she effectively – implemented the Equal Rights Amendment through judicial activism and many of her decisions that she, that she uh, uh, took part in, uh, talking about the forced uh, integration of, of Virginia Military Institute uh, and other, what's the other institute, military institute? You know, single-sex education uh, was declared unconstitutional under the um, her broad interpretation of equal protection. Of course, we have the uh, the uh, Obergefell decision, of course, she, there's other p- parties that <laughs> played a part in this as well, but this is also right. a radical interpretation of the 14th Amendment, a feminist interpretation of the 14th Amendment. One of the reasons why the Equal Rights Amendment was turned down was because it, many people argued at the time that it could be construed to legalize gay marriage, to legalize, to outlaw single-sex education institutions, uh, these things, yet there we have the court implementing these things, despite the fact that the ERA was shot down. She advocated uh, turning, uh, I think, reducing the consent age down to age 12. Yeah. And none of this was brought up during her confirmation hearings. Um, so why wasn't her radicalism brought up? Was, was this Jewish privilege? Of course it was. I was just going to say, what unites all of these uh, things that you mentioned? Well, the Jewish revolutionary spirit. Seems to me that's the and so we got and now we have uh, people like Diane Feinstein telling Amy Barrett, who's probably going to be nominated, mm-hmm. that uh, you are imposing your religious views as a Catholic. Well, wait a minute, Do you Do- mean dogma, Jews right? <laughs> Do- yeah, dogma. What well, you mean, Jews don't impose their views yes. on us when they get on the Supreme Court? You mean uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg didn't impose her her Jewish understanding of Tikkun Olam as including murdering the unborn, sodomy, all these other abominations? She didn't impose that on us? This is, this is intolerable, this double standard. Of course she had Jewish privilege. Of course that's what we're talking about. Well, uh, it's funny because uh, uh, they... Uh, yeah, they talk about dogma, and they 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 press candidates like uh, uh, like uh, J- Judge Barrett. Uh, will your Catholic faith influence your your jurisprudence? And they of course inevitably have to back down and say, no, I'll give you know, I'll, I'll uh, uh, advise or seek advice or, or or use precedent in my decisions. My Catholic faith doesn't affect my my uh, my decisions in these things. Yet no one ever asked a ju- you know, a, 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 a Elena Kagan or a, um, a Breyer 
or a Ruth Bader Ginsburg, whether or not Tikkun Olam or the Talmud affects their their Jewishness, Will that affect your 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 jurisprudence, your decision making, right? No. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like a double standard. Maybe I'm yeah. wrong. Maybe you can uh, straighten me out here. But it seems like a double standard to me, you know. And the and the problem is that the Catholics go along with this in a way that no Jew would ever feel uh, constrained to do. So the Catholics do uh, pull in, and they, and they think that they're being uh, uh, open-minded when they go along with the Jews, which is what happened with the Obergefell decision. Yeah, I mean that's the <laughs> trick that you you write about with Leo Pfeffer, talking about you know the naked public square and uh, uh, how you know you create this vacuum, which just was secular beliefs. And you expunge religion out of it. But then again, we all know nature abhors a vacuum. And whose values then uh, 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 went out? Well, his values, which are Jewish values. Right. That's, uh, that was in the whole Chivota Catholica series mm -hmm. on uh, the Jewish question. The official magazine of the, va of the Catholic Church uh, in 1890 stated any country that um, abolishes the the laws created by a Christian king to protect the Christian people will end up being ruled by Jews. Well, that was one of these shocking statements where you think that's did they really say that? And then you think about it, and well, isn't that what happened in the United States? I mean, they're saying in 1890 it happened in France. Didn't it happen here too? Is it, is it coincidence, or do we have some type of uh, substantiation of the fact that nature abhors a vacuum? I think that's what it's one or the other. There's no neutrality here. Okay, so so the Jew at the beginning, when he's out of power, he will promote free speech. This is what Leo Pfeffer said. Mm -hmm. He was in favor of free speech. Well, sure, as long as they're out of power and they will use their uh, network. Uh, people like Alan Dershowitz go on to Google and type in Alan Dershowitz, William F. Buckley, deep throat. And there's. Alan Dershowitz, a younger Alan Dershowitz with his afro, with his Jewish afro and his mustache there, defending Deep Throat as free speech. Free speech. And uh, wait a minute, that's pornography. Why, are we, why do we consider pornography free speech? Why now in the course of 2019, when we have the great debate over hate speech on the Internet, why isn't pornography part of that discussion? Well, because of Jews like Alan Dershowitz. It's very simple. They redefined the whole thing because they, they, they redefine free speech to include things that Jews do, which namely the production of pornography. And so no one's allowed, no one talks about that. And if you say Jews are heavily involved in pornography, they call you an anti-Semite, even though the Jewish professor you're quoting said exactly the same thing. So fast forward 50 years, and there's Alan Dershowitz again without the afro, without the mustache, standing next to Donald Trump, who is now making it a crime to criticize Israel uh, by federal order. Well, this, this epitomizes the hypocrisy of what we're talking about. Now, where is the principle here? The only principle I can see is, uh, is it good for the Jews? Is that, that's the ultimate legal principle. This is a man who was the, the, the uh, ch uh, chairman of the law school at Harvard University. Is this scholarship? No. No, it's Jewish privilege masquerading as scholarship. 
when 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 are we going to ha- when are we going to bring this tyranny to an end? Yeah, and there's always and then there's uh, he's always there justifying torture and then forced vaccinations. <laughs> Um, but it, it's interesting because you mentioned f- uh, free speech, the war on free speech, the Jewish war on free speech, um, and how this concept of hate speech, which was more or less created by the ADL. Um, and there's another justice up there, Elena Kagan, who's written a lot about hate speech. And she um, suggests that free speech can be suppressed if it's if it's uh, uh, classified as, as hate speech. And she herself, her career uh, is she's been a bit, been a beneficiary of Jewish nepotism her entire life, whether it's University of Chicago, Harvard, and then the Clinton administration, and then hired as a consultant for Goldman Sachs, then appointed to the Solicitor General, and then ele- elevated to the court by Barack Obama uh, with very little, uh, not much of a paper trail, and by all accounts, a, sort of an intellectual lightweight. Yet she's, a, again, these are political operatives. And this is how what the courts become. I mean, it's obviously this is several decades in the making, particularly since this. You know, I guess probably since the uh, oh, probably Second World War, the FDR administration. You know, uh, over the disputes over the New Deal stuff. But that's when the court became highly political. But particularly, I guess it was the Warren Court, right, when it really became with the judicial activism and and uh, the uh, Brown versus Board of Education, which Felix Frankfurter played an instrumental role in engineering and sort of guaranteeing a unanimous decision, which was illegal. He actually worked with the uh, council, worked with Thurgood Marshall uh, behind the scenes to engineer that ruling. Uh, again, another example of of, of a Jewish uh, judge just for go, uh, ignoring the yeah, law. And, yeah. and Murray Friedman in his, uh, 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 his book, uh, which uh, which book was it? I think the one on the neoconservative. No, the, it was on the book on the Black Jewish Alliance. What, uh, what happened or it didn't have to happen this way or something like that. But anyway... He said that uh, Brown versus School Board was based on Jewish science. The whole, <laughs> the whole anti-authoritarian personality project. You know, oh, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. the American Jewish Committee. All of the science, yeah. it was Jewish science. Murray Friedman saying that. Well, if I say that, I'm an anti-Semite. But Murray Friedman says it, and it's true. But that's what it was. So how long is this going to go on? Mm-hmm. How long are mm-hmm. we going to be constantly, you know, like cooking the books here for the benefit of a certain group of people? It goes on and on and on, on and on and on with no end in sight. It looks that way. It's only controversial when you try to when you nominate a Catholic, when you nominate a, a, a Jewish ideologue who has no scholarship, no background other than pure ideological manipulation. That's OK. That's OK. This is intolerable. And no regard for the law. Um, and, and of course, we, we shouldn't let her her. Um... Uh, the other justices off the hook, like Roberts and Kavanaugh, you know, uh, who have sold out. But even like I, I suspect, and you've written a lot about this, the problem of so many Catholics themselves being um, Judaized or, or or even Zionist, and you know, this is a part of of being of these Catholics who rise up through the American Empire system. They have to make these concessions. Even um, even Scalia, um, uh, you know. Uh, he would talk about original intent, but then <laughs> how do you have original intent with the incorporation doctrines? It's, that's part of the, you know, the schizophrenia of the American constitutional system going back to the, you know, the civil war in continuity, the myth of continuity. There's been a revolution, several revolutions within the American system under the guise, under the paper, the same paper constitution. 
Um, and we now we have today's critarchy, rule of judges. But it's really not a rule of judges because these judges are just frontmen for the oligarchy. They always rubber stamp the ol- interest of the oligarchs. And that's really been the, the uh, hidden grammar behind the Supreme Court law in America, right? All the way from the beginning. Yeah. All the way from the beginning, the Supreme Court was created to overrule the popular will. Uh, and uh, that that that's that's the way it began. It never changed. It was always some type of rubber stamp of oligarchic uh, oligarchic projects. And so 1954, the year you mentioned Brown versus School Board, that's integration. That's an oligarchic project. And also Berman versus Parker, which is the urban renewal decision, also an, uh, an oligarchic project. So what changed over this period of time is the composition of the oligarchy. <laughs> That's what changed. <laughs> so you went from having a, a nominally Christian uh, oligarchy to a virulently Jewish oligarchy. And there's a difference there. There's a difference there when it comes to respect for Logos. Uh, uh, people who, uh, you know, ignore it or have some type of attenuated understanding of it. The people who are trained to see rejection of Logos as a virtue. That's the difference. That's the difference between uh, the the original Supreme Court and the oligarchy re- oligarchy represented, and the new Supreme Court and the oligarchy they represent. That's what happened. Now, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, Jewish revolutionary, correct? Yes. And you in this article. Uh, that you've penned, The Invisible Man at the Race Riots, you talk about, well, uh, all the upheaval we've experienced uh, late spring through the summer going into the fall, and it doesn't seem to be abating in any way. In fact, it may change you know, pace, but it, they seem to be threatening. It seems to be like a revolution that's unfolding. And as this revolution continues apace, you know, the rev- I think something like the Supreme Court has become increasingly irrelevant because now there's a breakdown of all pretense of law and order. Uh, a good example is, um, you know, the court in California where they shut down the churches. Well, then you had Justice Roberts declare that's not a violation of the First Amendment to shut down churches, you see, because there's a pandemic. <laughs> right. You know, and just like how these uh, various you you write about, and I'll just get into detail about these various mayors and, and governors allowing mayhem to spread in their states and their cities. Um, and of course, behind, behind that scene is, of course, the Jewish revolution, revolutionary spirit incarnated in one, uh, George Soros and his operation. So I'll let you yes. take it from there. Yes. Yes. Recently, uh, just the other day, Newt Gingrich was on, uh, Fox news. Oh yeah. <laughs> and he's being interviewed and he says, you know, the biggest problem within these cities is you've got these. These uh, district attorneys that are appointed by George Soros and they won't arrest the criminals. They let him right back on the streets. And he's suddenly there's a silence. And the lady says, oh, we don't have to bring up the name of George Soros. And <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> Newt Gingrich? <laughs> You're talking about Mr. Conservative, Mr. Insider Conservative. who uh, And he's, he's being shut down by this info babe on Fox News. It's like, Newt, didn't you get the memo? And, and you could just look at Newt's face. He's dumbfounded. You're telling me I can't mention George Soros? He says, oh, I, I can't mention it? Is it verboten, he says? Yes, verboten, and, yeah. <laughs> is the word he used. And then that, that's it. Well, we'll have to move on. And there's no Gingrich cut off. It's so obvious. 
that this everybody knows that George Soros funded uh, Kim Gardner in St. Louis and Kim Fox in Chicago and many uh, other places because they brag about it. And then if you bring it up on the supposed conservative station, Fox News, you get shut down because you're not allowed to mention that name. Well, why? Well, is it anti-Semitic now to say George Soros? Well, the answer is yes. The answer is yes. So in other words, you're not even a man, an insider, a veteran politician like Newt Gingrich is not allowed to mention this and gets shut down by Fox News, which is supposedly the conservative uh, uh, channel that allows you to say things that you wouldn't uh, hear on the liberal media. This shows you how bad things are. Yeah, it was, it was this awkward like silence. And then he says, what? So I can't mention it. He's like, he's dumbfounded at first. He's dumbfounded. It was, it was amazing. <laughs> amazing to see that. Um, so, I mean, uh, here we have, uh, you know, the, uh, you have, you first year, of course you had the pandemic and, and the shutdowns, the economic shutdown, the, uh, the lockdown as they call it. Um, but it, like, in a situation like in Minneapolis, uh, where, uh, you write about how, uh, the ADL and other Jewish groups have taken both positions on this issue where, uh, they can train the police force in these tactics, or, although it's been now it's coming out that that probably didn't kill George Floyd. He probably died of drug overdose. And that's be interesting how that plays out legally with the court here with, you know, with the trial of the policeman. But um, they're also on the other side to benefit from the you know, from the controversy that occurs. Right. Yeah. Right. They're playing both they sides. Had, of it. They had an internal memo there. How are we going to manage this? Because if it gets out that we were involved in the Israelization of the police department, there's going to be a backlash against us from Black Lives Matter, which we're also supporting. We're also supporting. We're playing both sides of the street here. You know, uh, this is what's going on. And we can't uh, let that get out because it will hurt our campaign here to spread the Jewish revolutionary spirit. So what, what what's going on here? Well, we're in the middle of a color revolution, or maybe we could call it a colored revolution. The color revolution for the colored revolution. And one of the main uh, proponents of that has always been George Soros. So what, what do we mean by a color revolution? Well, the most recent examples are uh, the Ukraine uh, and Iran. Iran in 2009. What happened in Iran in 2009? Ahmadinejad was running for re-election. Ahmadinejad was in a situation similar to Donald Trump. He was the populist candidate. He had been a mayor of Tehran and had created a fund for women without dowries. So he was helping them get married. The people loved Ahmadinejad, but the elites didn't. Northern Tehran was dead set against him. And they talked to each other. They controlled the, the media to a large extent and came to the conclusion that no decent person would ever vote for Ahmadinejad. And uh, all of my friends are, are against him, and they're all decent people, so therefore he can't win. Well, he does win. And at this point, there is the people are moved onto the street. Okay, huge demonstrations uh, protesting this. It could not have been possible. There must have been fraud because all of my friends voted for the other guy. That was the kind of logic that went on here. They got a lot of people on the streets, and then once you reach a certain critical mass on the street, 
you start killing people. This happened in the Ukraine. Uh, very clearly, there were operatives that were shooting people, shooting into the crowd. The same thing happened in Tehran. So the, the there's a demonstration in front of the Basiji, which is the big organization that supports the uh, the supreme leader and the, the the ruling party. And at a certain point, some people get shot, and then the news goes out that uh, Ahmed in a job is shooting his own people, killing his own people. Well, we heard that before because we heard it in Libya. Remember, Gaddafi was shooting, is killing his own people. Except that it turns out it was. ISIS operatives that were put there by the United States and Hillary Clinton was responsible for the murder of Gaddafi. We've also heard the same thing in uh, Syria. I can't tell you how many mainstream news reports I heard of people saying Assad is killing his own people. That is going to happen in November. That's what's going to happen. So be prepared. Okay, there's going to be a contested election. We know who's behind it. It's called the um, Transition Integrity Project. It's run by a Jew by the name of Norm Eisen, who was uh, associated with the Obama administration. And they are going, they are working out strategies to deny Trump re-election, which will uh, involve, first of all, not conceding. No one is allowed to concede. I mean, Biden is not allowed to concede on election night. Uh, this will drain, draw it out into a much longer operation. Votes will be counted that weren't there before. And during this period of time, you will have Antifa and Black Lives Matter rioting in the streets in uh, imitation of the type of rioting that happened in uh, in Iran and the Ukraine. And so I'm, tell the, I'm telling you ahead of time, guys, if you're in Antifa, if you're in one of those demonstrations, plan to get shot because one of your own people is going to shoot you. And then they're going to blame it on the government. They're going to blame it on Donald Trump. And that will be an excuse to overthrow the government. That's what's coming down the pike. Now, uh, in the article, you you, you uh, make the connections between Antifa and Black Lives Matter and the rather generous funding it's gotten, not only from the uh, Open Society Foundation, George Soros's uh, organization, uh, non-governmental organization. This is uh, an organization which has also played a big part in destabilizing other governments, as you mentioned, Ukraine, uh, Georgia. Uh, uh, I think um, uh, I don't know. I'm sure if he was active in Yugoslavia or you know the Balkans back in the 90s. But um, the way it does, it, it creates a, a false popular uprising and it's orga organizing and it's, you know. Well, this, this goes all the way back, back to the beginning. What was the beginning of this playbook? It was Tehran in 1953. Yes. When, when Kermit Roosevelt was sent in there to overthrow Mossadegh. <laughs> Mossadegh was an, again a popular leader. The people of Iran supported Mossadegh. <laughs> the people who didn't like Mossadegh were the British Winston Churchill did not like him he, uh, because he was he nationalized the uh, the Iranian uh, British oil company. Uh, the United States, for some reason, the Iranians love the United States. They love the United States people. They can separate the people from the government. And all the United States had to do was offer the Iranians the same deal they had offered the Saudis, and they would have been friends forever. But because of this 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 weird 
uh, anglophilic uh, vein that goes through groups like the CIA, they chose to support England. That was really stupid. Why did you do that? Well, because that's who you think you are. You have this the grand rapprochement where the upper class in America felt they had more in common with English aristocrats than they had with fellow Americans. It just runs deep in institutions like Yale, Skull and Bones, and the CIA. Okay, so you made the wrong decision, and uh, you now we've got to depose Mossadegh because we're siding with the British. And Kermit Roosevelt did exactly that. Okay, he starts the first really covert operation after the war, 53, large demonstrations on the street. It doesn't work. The Shah is scared to death. He thinks he's going to get executed for treason. And then Kermit, it fails. And then Kermit says, give it one more try. And it succeeded. And they succeeded in toppling Mossadegh. And that became the playbook all the way up to this day. Now it's backed by people like Soros, the National Endowment for Democracy, whatever it's called. All these things. It's a playbook. Everybody knows what's going to happen because it's happened over and over and over again. One year after they did it in, in Tehran, they did it in Guatemala. It's over and over again. So that's what's going to happen. I guarantee you. I don't have a crystal ball, but history is a good indication of what the future is going to be. And that's what I'm seeing. So the question is, does Attorney General Barr, does Donald Trump have some way of dealing with this? The antidote. How are you going to deal with this? Well, you're right. The, the race riots of May and June 2020 were only the latest installment of what might be called the regime of governance by crisis, which began four years ago when the deep state decided to do whatever was necessary to depose Donald Trump. The campaign began with Russiagate, followed by impeachment, followed by uh, a hate speech campaign of 2019, which sought to ban unwanted content from the Internet, followed by the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, of course, the lockdown itself was attempted to destroy the U.S. economy, um, I guess, at least I guess for the immediate benefit uh, of maybe winning an election. Probably much more is at stake, I think, because we, we'll, we have the Davos crowd planning to reshape the, the entire world <laughs> because of the pandemic. Uh, so there's a lot going on here. But we have an example. We have, we have, now, we have a history of CIA, uh, other uh, MI6, and also uh, these NGOs that, that have uh, foundations that have, create, that have been created you know, over the years uh, operating to undermine other governments. And I think someone, the founder of the of – the, um, um, uh, what's that democracy thinking? I'm sorry. National Endowment for Democracy. National Endowment, yeah, National Endowment for Democracy, which is, I think, Ronald Reagan created it. And I think he said, the, the guy who first headed it, said it was going to do what the CIA used to do. <laughs> you know, and so it's 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 there to undermine a government. Uh, um, and now it seems to me this is being applied domestically. Yes, of course it yeah. is. Now, so. you know, one thing we've both left out of this is uh, the role of big tech, Google. Mm -hmm. I did an article a few months back on how Google conquered Ireland. That whole manipulation is now being brought into play. Uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Facebook. Um, Zuckerberg, mm -hmm. the guy who stole it from the Winklevoss twins at Harvard and then made a lot of money and now is a, an influence. He says he's, he's going to determine how the election results get released. Well, wait a minute. Who, who gave you this power? 
This is part of the problem here, too, because we've got these unelected entities that are considered private operations but have the power of utilities because they have monopoly power over new technologies, basically determining the outcome of elections. Who gave these people the right to determine the outcome of the election? And why is government not able to, to act against these, these, these people? They're more powerful than government. That's the lesson we have to draw here. Yeah, the, um, I mean, I think you've made this comment before that, um, uh, and you wrote about this in, um, in your book on John Cardinal Kroll, about the function of the foundations and the, uh, their role in, in promoting subversion and the, the Reese Committee hearings, how... Right. It, it, uh, uh, That's 53. Uh, uh, We're yeah. talking about 53. And the Congress is saying foundations are too powerful. We have to stop them. And of course, the foundations prove that by shutting down the Reese Committee here. <laughs> yeah. So, so the, yeah. the, the updated version of that is the, the Jews who control the media tell the Jew who controls Facebook to ban anyone who says the Jews control the media. And he does it. So we just proved that the Jews control the media. What, what, what more proof do you need here? And you talk about the power of these, of Silicon Valley, of, of an outfit like Google or Facebook and these high tech companies. Yeah, it is. I think it's a fair characterization to say these are public utilities because they've been lavished with federal, with taxpayer dollars to grow as big as they are. Um, they're given special protection with copyright protection, intellectual property, all types of privileges with corporation, corporate charters, allow them to grow. Um, but also directly an outfit like Google and also Facebook, which actually received direct funding from Incutel, which was a CIA cap, uh, you know, uh, uh, capital venture firm. The CIA is nominally controlled by the taxpayers, right? It's a public operate. It's a public was it ever controlled? Was it well, ever I know. controlled by government? <laughs> Harry well, Truman is the man who brought the CIA into existence yeah. in '63. He said it was a rogue operation; that mm -hmm. no one was in control of the CIA. And then in '76, we had the Church Committee hearings where they said the CIA is completely out of control. They're involved in criminal activity all over the world, and and what has happened? Well, nothing, nothing. So who's in control here? Uh, yeah, that's that's the question we have to ask ourselves because right now uh, – I've made this point earlier this year – is you have uh, organizations like the Ford Foundation, uh, organizations like the Open Society Foundation, organizations like Antifa and Black Lives Matter, and there's hundreds of million dollars that's being passed along uh, to create war chests for these operations to destabilize – to, it's an it's an interstate conspiracy for violence and subversion, and there should be investigations not at the federal level but the state level into into this criminal enterprise that also entangles and involves politicians, uh, the, the 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 Obama administration. Yet there's no investigation of this subversive plot. No. Well, why is that? Well, because in 1984, the ADL got in bed with the the FBI helping to uh, stop hate crimes, right-wing conspiracies. One of the biggest jokes that happened during this whole period is the Department of Homeland Security came out and said, white supremacists are the biggest threat to the, uh, the, the United States of America. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is as antifies burning down one city after another. Yes. In Kenosha, the police... Uh, pull up at a gas station. There are three vehicles with out-of-state license plates. The guys are there filling up canisters of gasoline. 
and they were all arrested. Well, will the trial bring out who these people were and who was paying them? Yeah. What's going on here? Why is how is so, so in 1984 the FBI gets in bed with the ADL and then the ADL starts pointing out to the FBI who they're supposed to apprehend as criminals. Uh, 1984 is also the year that uh, Mo Dallas was given the ADL's um, uh, Torches of, of of Freedom Award, Torches of Liberty, or something like yeah. that. Mo Dallas was a notorious mafioso criminal who went from being uh, uh, head of the Jewish Navy in Cleveland to going legit in uh, Las Vegas uh, by giving the ADL lots of money. So it's a money laundering operation uh, to protect Jewish criminals. Well, of course, if these people are calling the shots, of course they're not going to go after Antifa because Antifa is a Jewish organization. We know that. They brag about it. Google Google uh, Antifa and history, and uh, you'll find oh, I forget which magazine. I, I I put it in the footnote, which which mm-hmm. Jewish magazine goes into great detail about their history. As a Jewish organization, they're proud of it. If I say it, I'm an anti-Semite. That's right. Were they agitating to take down um, a statue of um, uh, the French, uh, Vichy French guy, Patan or something? Or... <laughs> well, they agitated to take down the statue of St. Louis the Ninth in, in St. Louis. Oh, yeah. We talked about that last time and how, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, so uh, w- what statue is it going to be now? You know, they're actually uh, Andrew Cuomo announced he's going to put up a statue of Ruth Bader Ginsburg in New York City. Yeah, uh, Minneapolis Monday is going to be Ruth Bader Ginsburg Day. J- Jacob Fry announced that. I, I saw the actually I saw the candle. There's a votive candle with Ruth Bader Ginsburg's face on it. A, a votive candle already. So. <laughs> this will be the triumph of Catholic Jewish dialogue. She'll be nominated for canonization. <laughs> well, that's the problem, and I've run into this too. Is uh, Catholics themselves? Uh, uh, they'll lament uh, what's what they see culturally going on, and we talked about this uh, a couple months ago uh, because of Catholic Jewish dialogue. They've been captured, and they can't. They've internalized the commands of their oppressors, and they can't. They don't have the grammar, and therefore not the rhetoric to wage. Uh, countercultural warfare because to do that you have to identify uh, Jews involvement in this thing right yeah you know. look the only I, I don't what when I don't remember when we did the the uh, the the St. Louis podcast but what happened there is that uh, they lost Omar Lee lost that battle that statue is still standing uh, uh, now I think. I played a role in that because I was the one who identified what was going on. I think I played a role because at the great uh, culmination of the, the climax of this battle, when Umar Lee called for all these people to show up, I released the article. And I said, what's going on here is identity theft. He's claiming that all of these people are white supremacists when I know that they're Catholics. Do white supremacists pray the rosary? Not in any I've never seen that. <laughs> so what so what you're seeing here is identity theft. And when I named the identity theft, it, it broke that it, it, it stopped their campaign. Because so how do I know I, I played a role in this? Because within hours of me releasing the article, Umar Lee challenges me to a debate. So he didn't know who I was from Adam before that. Then he challenged me to a debate. You can watch it on it's on BitChute. 
you can you can make up your mind who won. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that the, the 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 statue is still standing, and I'm saying the only reason it's standing is because I pointed out that this is identity theft, and I didn't allow that group of people of that group of Catholics to be misidentified as white supremacists. That's what has to happen. The Catholic people have to assert their identity because if they allow themselves to be portrayed as white, they're going to lose. Just think of the comparison between. St. Louis and Charlottesville. They're mm-hmm. both battles over statues. Charlottesville was a, a debacle because those guys uh, basically internalized the commands of their oppressors. They identified as white. Well, if you do that, you're going to lose. St. Louis, the statue is still standing because I broke that, uh, that, that, that broke up that game and said, no, they're Catholics. And once it's a Catholic uh, Jewish issue, which is really what it was, it's not a black-white issue, then it's it's not going to work, and it didn't work. It, it also seemed to stop this sort of this the this spasm of iconoclasm that we've been seeing, where the momentum stops, and once you and there's a break in the madness, and so you know. look by the grace of God, maybe it did, maybe it did, maybe that's but but the point uh, that so uh, in the in the run up to this thing. Uh, after Umar Lee challenges me, he says, it's going to be in an empty room with just the two of us. And I said, well, there's no point in me coming to St. Louis to talk to an empty room. So then I, <laughs> I turned to the Catholic group there, and I said, why don't you invite me down? I'll give a speech to the Catholics, and then I'll debate uh, Umar. So we go back and forth at their board meeting. I'm Skyped into their board meeting, and they vote against me five to three with one abstention. Don't come. And as soon as the challenge came out there, the rosary prayers are saying, don't come to St. Louis. One guy writes, if E. Michael Jones come, comes to the, to, this, to, this, uh, to, the, to the demonstration, we're all going to be called anti-Semites. Let's just pray the rosary. Well, that's not the way it works, guys. It's not, it's aura et labora. It's not out aura, out labora, either a prayer or uh, uh, work. It's both, and you had to do the intellectual work to describe what describe what was going on in order to stop that. I'm a, I'm not against uh, the rosary. I pray the rosary every day, but that's not all I do. And if you think that's all God is interested in, I think you're mistaken. I mean, it's not in the scriptures. The scripture is when they, you know, okay, you gave your speech, Jesus. Now everybody's hungry. What do we do? Well, go send them to a restaurant. Well, uh, there aren't any. Well, then Jesus says, well, what do you have? Well, we've got five loaves and two fish. What are we going to do with that? There are 5,000 people here. What are we going to do with that? Well, Jesus did not need their five loaves and two fishes. He's God. He could have created anything, but he chose to multiply their efforts. And I think that's the key to understanding what happened in St. Louis. He's not going to do it by itself. There's no magic going on here. Magical power of the rosary where you don't have to do some other explanation of what's going on, where you don't have to do the legwork. That's magic. That's mumbo jumbo. And that wouldn't have worked. But it did work. And I think you may be right because Jesus did multiply the loaves and the fishes much more than anything that they could have expected. And so maybe he multiplied 
our efforts in St. Louis. Maybe the iconoclasm did stop there. Who knows? We'll find out maybe later. Who knows? It's also uh, uh, almost not forcing Catholics, but, but getting them to acknowledge that uh, they have adversaries or enemies and supposed to just pretending that they don't have what? enemies. You know. What? We have enemies? I didn't know that. <laughs> I thought everybody loved us. <laughs> who Who are our enemies? Can you tell me? Well, the, it, theologically uh, and culturally, it's, it's the, the Jews. Do you mean the enemies of the entire human race, uh, as St. Paul described them? The people who killed Christ, the enemies of the entire human race? It goes throughout the gospel. Mm -hmm. They are enemies of the gospel. They expelled Paul from the synagogue. They killed St. Stephen. Do you think things have changed? No, they haven't changed. The methods may have changed, but the, the, the fault lines are still there, and they are always going to be there until Jesus comes in glory. Because it's the battle between Logos and anti-Logos, mm -hmm. and for better or for worse, it's the battle between the Catholic Church, which is the cutting edge of Logos in human history, and the Jews, which are the force of anti-Logos, the Jewish revolutionary spirit. Well, it wasn't Muslim. It turns out that in St. Louis, uh, the, the Muslim protesters that were showing up at the foot of the statue of St. Louis, they were urged on by a, 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 by a rabbi. <laughs> so there you have someone behind the so curtain. Again. Yeah. So this, this is another aspect of this. I don't know whether we discussed this or not. One of my contacts in St. Louis got a call from his Jewish friend. And the Jew says, oh, Rabbi Susan Talva, nobody takes her seriously. No Jew takes her seriously. She's an apostate and she's a sorceress. So my friend tells me, I said, well, you know, call him back and say, look, what we've got to do here." is take a united stand. We, as the Catholic and Jewish citizens of St. Louis, have to unite against the iconoclasts and the revolutionaries. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I s expressed that in a letter to the editor, to the Jewish newspaper, and they never printed my letter. And my friend, uh, when he told this to his Jewish friend, he said, oh no, we can't do that. So, well, where do you stand, fellas? I mean, are you citizens or not? I'm referring to my my Jewish uh, my Jewish countrymen here. Are you citizens or not? Or are is it the old story still the the same story, where the only thing you're interested is what serves Jewish interests, and you have no concern whatsoever for the public good? If that's the case, and you seem to indicate that because you refuse to go along with any type of public campaign, then you should not be in any position of public power in the United States. And you should not be a Supreme Court justice, because that's exactly the attitude that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg expressed when she was on the bench. It was all Jewish interest, of course, disguised as feminist interest. But feminism is, is a Jewish ideology and abortion is a Jewish sacrament, along with sodomy. Mm -hmm. That's interesting, because uh, I mean, I guess the first Jewish justice was Brandeis, appointed by Woodrow Wilson. Who was compromised, um, you know? Uh, but um, at the time, it was suspicious because of this this uh, dual loyalty issue, whether a, a Jew could be considered loyal to f fully loyal to the American Republic and to its laws. And it turns out that Brandeis did belong to a Jewish secret society called the Purushim. He was a Zionist agent, and he did work behind the scenes to advance 
what he believed to be Jewish and Zionist interests using his position. And so yes. it turns out those suspicions were correct. And we see it today, uh, you know, with um, so many Jews with dual citizenship acting as Jewish agents, acting as Jewish spies, if you will, throughout the government. Uh, we, we, uh, good example, an alpha like APAC doesn't have to register as a foreign agent. No. Uh, they seem to be ex uh, immune from the Foreign Agent Registration Act. Uh, in fact, some people say it played a part in getting both Bobby and Jack Kennedy murdered in the 1960s. Um, one, you know, part of the um, cabal that had had them assassinated, them both assassinated. But um, yeah, it's one of these problems. We have an issue of, of dual loyalty. Is a Jew loyal first to, to the Jewish people? They, and that's what that goes back to the founding principles of Zionism. Or are they full citizenship? They 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 like to play uh, both uh, roles, I guess. Um, and the, and liberalism itself, where you know we, we're we're taught that these things shouldn't, one's religion shouldn't matter. Yet to them it does matter, and that, that's that's a problem with the, uh, a liberal society that lacks an integral identity. It can be very easily be infiltrated by a group that does have solidarity and strong identity at the same time that the, the, the deny that identity to the host population. That's right. Yeah, that's right. It goes all the way back to the beginning because it was uh, when Napoleon uh, decided to meet to uh, emancipate the Jews. He's trying to make up his mind here. He meets with the Jewish the French version of the Sanhedrin. And he says, will you support France above everything else? And the Jews all cry out with one voice, even to the point of death, we will do that. Well, by the time he, he, didn't, he was coming back from the Battle of Jena, okay, so we're only talking about two years, three years later. And... Um, gets to Strasbourg, and everybody's complaining about the Jews already. They are already abusing their position as citizens, already victimizing the Christians as dupe, duping the Goyim as a virtue. They learned it from the Talmud. This is Heinrich Great saying this. Mm -hmm. uh, the of Jewish historiography said that. Well, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. And we're now in the same situation where Pretending that it didn't happen doesn't make it better. And I'm saying that's a fortiori true of the Catholic Church. Pretending that you've had 50 glorious years of Catholic-Jewish dialogue doesn't change the fact that they have, uh, you have done nothing to stop their destruction of the moral order. Yeah, and their identity <laughs> as Jews play a part in, in, their, in destructing the moral order. So if you can't criticize them, the Jews as a corporate entity, a, a political body, you're you're disarmed in the culture war, as we see That's right. you know, the results of the past 50 years. Um, That's right. I think it was that Rabbi Stephen Wise was asked about this very question back in the 1920s, and he said, uh, oh, you, he was posed, are you an American or are you a Jew? Which is it? And he said, well, I've been a Jew for 4,000 years. We've only been American for 200 years. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. And so we have to address that reality. And this is why uh, in the early years before Jewish emancipation, you had these, these uh, uh, restrictive laws that, that it, they did identify these, uh, that these, this was an alien group that acted this way. Uh, we tend to see it as primitive, as, you know, as anti-Semitic. As, as discrimination. Discrimination. Take, yeah, take, that take, word. Take yeah. Harvard, Harvard University, classic example. Yeah. Where they had quotas for Jews, and that was bad, so they struck down the quotas. Well, the Jews took over Harvard University. It's a Jewish university now. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. 
The um, before I let you go, I want to get your take on this. I know we're coming up on an hour, but um, uh, we're, we're seeing this revolution, and there's a technology, there's a method to it. Now, for centuries, like I think going back to the late 18th through the 19th, and probably as far as going into the mid 20th century, uh, Freemasonry played a big part in this. I think the latest, latest or last example uh, is the Propaganda Due operation in Italy in the 1980s and 90s, sort of at the uh, of a parallel government. Uh, their role in all types of subversive activities, um, you know, the Vatican scandal, Operation Gladio, and these things. Um, but Freemasonry they, it succeeded in its revolutionary objectives, largely in the 19th century, and the whole world sort of adopted its principles. And so when you talk about Freemasonry itself, it's largely obsolete, but it isn't irrelevant uh, because now its principles, whether, you know, of indifferentism and uh, um, have been adopted by the entire world of democracy in these things. So it's no longer really necessary to carry out its revolutionary principle because the revolution has succeeded. Uh, but you said that revolution, Freemasonry is now obsolete. But what we're seeing now with this, these colored revolutions abroad and here is there's a new technology to revolution. Can, can you have anything to say on that that needs to be acknowledged in order to fight it? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, we do. I, I've already described this beginning in 53 with mm -hmm. the overthrow of Mossadegh. You have, uh, well, I mean, C.D. Jackson described it. It was called psychological warfare. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, he everybody was talking about it and he tried to define it in, in some way or other. But that that's that's it's warfare. This is how you succeed without firing a shot. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's what's going on now. But the point is, we know that it's going on. Now, if there's ever been, if they, you know, what you used to say in boxing, you don't telegraph your punches. Well, they've telegraphed this punch. <laughs> so the question is, if you know it's going to land there, are you going to be standing there right in the middle of the street where the bomb is supposed to land? Are we going to be able to do something about it? We know what's going to happen. We know how it's going to happen. We know the techniques. We know what to expect. Well, why can't we stop it then? Well, don't we have to fight things like the ideas of, of, of corporations and the ideas of these th uh, being free acting private entities when they're not? And also acknowledge that these companies, these corporations are now acting as agents of foreign interests. And therefore, the sovereign government needs to take action and investigate. There, there are laws in the books. I mean, we do. Yeah. We do. There are antitrust laws that mm -hmm. should be imposed here. But the problem with this is it's a new technology and nobody understands what the technology is. So and there was a time when the railroad was a new technology and the railroad would show up in your valley and the, the farmers could get their crops to market by using the railroad. But the railroad said, we'll charge whatever the freight will bear. Well, that's because they weren't considered a utility. Once, once you understand that it's a utility and not a, a, a purely private entity, there are certain responsibilities that go with it. Mm -hmm. Well, that transformation, we have to identify what's going on here. If you own 80, 83% of the book market, you're a monopoly and you should be broken up. That's what Amazon is. They don't care about me because they have so much money, uh, any one customer is insignificant. It's as if... We're in a situation where as if the phone company is listening into your conversation and they don't like what you're saying. So they're kind of going to cut off your phone service. Or the gas company is listening into your telephone conversation and they don't like what you're saying. So they're going to cut off your gas supply in the middle of the winter. 
Well, we would be outraged if they did that, but that's exactly what these tech companies are doing. They're interfering with trade. We have laws against that, and they're not being enforced because no one can identify what's going on or the, 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 the new technology as being a utility rather than just a private company. Yeah, and, and, and in your book, you talk about, uh, and John Cardinal Kroll, how the Catholic Church was completely oblivious to this, to the to the role of the foundations and sort of this psychological warfare, the weaponization of integration to break up, you know, the, the Catholic or urban neighborhoods, particularly in Philadelphia. You cover it in that book. And, of course, the long-term um, political impact, cultural impact, that would be the weakening of the Catholic Church's ethnic identity, the Catholic's ethnic identity, and also the political power that grew from that. And the 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 fact that the princes of the church were completely unaware of this, and they were completely out outmaneuvered, and that's something that's going on now, where the, the the current laws, the political paradigm that most people think, right versus left, libertarian versus communism, these things don't apply because they're dealing with something which doesn't fit into, into these categories of thought right. anymore. Yeah, yeah. So conservatism has become completely irrelevant. Mm-hmm. A libertarianism completely irrelevant because they cannot deal with this. If it's a private entity, then it's by ips, it's ipso facto not tyrannical because only government can be tyrannical. Well, that's preposterous. They are completely irrelevant to the situation today. We've got these private entities that are more powerful than government. What are you going to do about that? Well, we don't have to do anything about it. They're private entities. They're good because they're private. Government's bad. Yeah, I mean, you have an outfit like the Open Society Foundation, which has funded down ballot uh, candidates, so they can be in a position to spread mayhem and a revolution. And this is all privately funded, and this is obviously tyrannical and oppressive. But George Soros doesn't hold any official political power, right? No, he's not. Nobody yeah. elected him to office. This was the whole point of yeah. the Religious Freedom Restoration Act in in Indiana, mm-hmm. when Mark Benioff shows up in town and tells him to overturn their laws. The law they just passed. Well, who who elected you, Mark? The, if 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 if, if uh, Governor Pence hadn't had ninety percent of his brain removed when he became an evangelical, he should have said, uh, "Arrest this man. He's trying to overthrow the government." That's what he should have done. Right. No one elected Mark Benioff to the state legislature to the governor's no. office. Yeah. Who gave this private man, this private citizen, more powerful than the legislature of the state of Indiana? Who did that? Did I, was I asked as a, as a citizen of Indiana to approve that? No. This is a war on representative government. That's exactly what it's going to be in November. It's, it's going to be a war on representative government. And the same thing happens like in Georgia when the NFL threatens to pull the Super Bowl out because Georgia's going to pass the Defense of Marriage Act. Or in North Carolina when they have the audacity to say that men and women should att- go to different bathrooms. And the uh, I think it was the NCAA threatened. Uh, sure. Uh, well, uh, uh, the NCAA uh, has its headquarters in Indianapolis and they threatened to pull out and say, OK, yeah, you could. We'll, we'll see you later, guys. It's been nice. But by the way, all of those tax breaks we gave you uh, to build that big building, I want the money back. Yeah. Or uh, yeah. we're going to sue you for the money that we gave because you're leaving. Now, why did they do that? And it's obvious collusion, you know, so investigate that. You have RICO laws. You have you have uh, uh, antitrust laws. And, you can, again, you can also pass all, you know, 
yeah. <laughs> uh, so and, and again, the, the, you have to look at it as a revolution, as a conspiracy against the republic, and also to spread mayhem and violence. People have died. Property has been destroyed. That's right. And there's That's a conspiracy. Right. It's interstate. And, you know, you can have grand jury investigations at the state level. Might be more productive there. You can't rely on the FBI. But, yeah, the Justice Department could investigate all these things. Um, uh, that's what the 14th Amendment supposedly for, right? <laughs> you know. is, it, is, it, is Mr. Barr listening? Yes. I hope you're listening, Mr. Barr, you know. because you're, you've made some of the most intelligent comments yet. Certainly the most intelligent comments any elected official has ever made on the situation, mm -hmm. things that he said. So let's hope he can act on his convictions in a second term. Yep. Well, listen, uh, we're past an hour, and I said it had an hour, so I'm going to let you go enjoy uh, your vacation. Now, thank you so much for coming back on the show. My pleasure. And, of course, that's e. Michael Jones, uh, editor of Culture Wars, of course, and the author of uh, Logos Rising, A History of Ultimate Reality. The latest article is The Invisible Man at the Race Riots in the September issue of Culture Wars. You can go to culturewars.com, right? Culturewars.com? Yes, yes. And subscribe, And subscribe and also get the books there. So. That's right. They're all available there. Great. Well, thanks so much. I'll let you go and enjoy the fall, and we'll be in touch. Thank you. Good night, then. Bye-bye. Violence!